You're listening to the Vineyard Community Church Podcast. For more information, visit vccmountcomfort.org. Well, last week when we finished our little section, just a few verses in chapter 10 of Mark, Jesus is, is talking as the disciples are saying, but we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus says, no, no one has left family, houses, homes, all that, fields, that's not gonna receive in this time and in the time to come a hundredfold. So there's a, a great increase in the kingdom that's a little different than what we see. How do we know if we've increased here in, in the earth? Well, if you had $5, now you got 10, and that's an increase. If you had three goats and now you have six goats, now that's an increase. But in the kingdom, the order of increases is, is different than what we see here in the natural realm. So much so that Jesus gives the upside down principle in the sense of the kingdom, that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. <laughs> the weak shall be strong, the strong weak. <laughs> the poor shall become rich and the rich poor. Amen. Oh. So there's, there's all sorts of inversions when it comes to the kingdom of God. And Jesus just summarizes it by just saying, the first shall be last and the last first. Hmm. Then he hits the road again. We pick up with our text. Beginning at verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be betrayed into the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear what the Spirit's saying to us individually and to us as a church corporately. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the third time that Jesus is predicting his passion, his death, and his resurrection. The first announcement comes in Mark chapter 8, which we've already covered. But for review's sake, this is what Jesus said. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Not a good idea, Peter. Mm -mm. Nope, 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 nope. But here we, we find in the first occasion that Peter could not hold himself back from Jesus' wrong understanding of what a Messiah is supposed to do. And so Peter felt compelled to help Jesus understand what his mission is. And uh, Jesus goes on from there and he talks about following him, taking up 
our cross and following him. It's always about following Jesus. So the second announcement comes in Mark chapter 9, verse, we'll begin reading at verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. I want to include verse 30 in case you're trying to get a clue in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, 31, chapter 9, 31, chapter 10, 31, 32, you're going to get all the, the predictions of his suffering and death. Verse 31, because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise but they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. And if you remember, I think they probably remember what happened to Peter when he tried to correct Jesus. And so they just went kind of silent on that one. Afterwards, immediately, they're talking about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? Isn't it interesting? As you read the scriptures and you read the gospels and when you find this sober moment in time and space when Jesus is talking about his death, his suffering, what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem, immediately after that, the disciples do not understand and, and they get so out of sorts that they're, they're jockeying for position. They're trying to figure out how they're going to position themselves for great honor and reward. Hmm. Who's the greatest? So here they are. They're heading to Jerusalem. In the King James Version, it says, and his face was like flint as they headed toward Jerusalem. Jesus takes the lead. The others in the background probably trying to figure out who's supposed to be next. What's going to be the position of the procession? But here Jesus takes the lead, and he takes the lead to the point that they're amazed. So now they're on their way to Jerusalem. It's the place where the king resides. The palace is in Jerusalem. The temple is in Jerusalem. All the prophets, you know, Jesus at one point says, can, can any of the prophets die outside of Jerusalem? It's the place of persecution and death, but it's also the place of royalty. And in the messianic order, it's supposed to be the place where the king, the Messiah comes and he will come and rule and their enemies will be dealt with. So with Jesus leading the way, he is determined. He is absolutely determined. And when the disciples and those that are following see the determination of Jesus, I think they get a clue that something's up. He's not just walking nonchalantly, talking with them. I kind of get the picture that he's kind of, he's kind of focused and he's, mark, he's walking at a, at a hurried pace. He's, he's walking at a good pace. He's headed to Jerusalem. He knows everything that Jerusalem will bring to him. And yet, compelled by love, He's walking right to Jerusalem. 
He's not trying to avoid Jerusalem. He's not trying to avoid pain. He's not trying to avoid the persecution. He's not trying to avoid the rejection that he knows lies for him and the certain ultimate death. He walks steadfastly toward Jerusalem. The disciples are astonished. Man, this guy's really committed. He's determined. He's on the path and he is walking and he is bold and he's like a lion. And it's like, hmm. I imagine with their understanding that the Messiah comes to Jerusalem to take over, they're probably astonished and kind of excited, thinking this is good stuff. We're going to go back. And, you know, oftentimes when we go into storms, Jesus has a way of making the storm disappear. Oftentimes when we go into circumstances where there's not enough, Jesus makes a provision and there's more than enough. And now we're going into Jerusalem and we know that there's a lot of persecution there and that they're trying to kill him. They do not like him and yet they're going. So they're thinking, I wonder what he's gonna do now. This is gonna be spectacular. And they're astonished. But others, only know the danger and they're afraid. There's great fear. They know what lies ahead. And if there's guilt by association, guess what? They're following and Jesus out front. So everybody behind could be in trouble as they pursue to arrest Jesus. They knew of the religious hatred that was out there towards Jesus. So while he's on the way, he takes a moment and he pulls the disciples aside and he's going to tell them what's going to happen. Do you think that would be important? If, this, if there's this large group of people following Jesus all heading to Jerusalem, some are going for the Passover, some are on pilgrimage, they're heading to Jerusalem and Jesus stops Earlier in, in the second prediction of, of his suffering, he didn't want anybody to know where he was with his disciples so he could just have one-on-one -on -one time with his disciples. And now we get the same kind of uh, atmosphere where Jesus pulls the 12 apart and he talks with them. And he's going to tell them everything that's going to happen to him. The third time. First time, rebuke. Second time, don't understand. Third time, mums the word. You'll see in the, in the account here that there is no response from the disciples about what Jesus says is going to happen to him. But he gives them a heads up. I love heads ups. I love it when someone tells me what's going to happen and it comes to pass. Especially if it's pleasant, if it's good. I love it when I couldn't watch a ball game and somebody tells me, Colts win. And then I get out the DVR and I watch and the Colts win. And I just love that that when someone tells me what's happened or is going to happen and I get to watch it and it comes to pass. 
So here Jesus is, he's giving them a heads up. They don't seem to understand it. And, and we'll look at Luke's account of, of how they respond to this third and final presentation of Jesus's death. But this is what he tells them. The son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. He will be betrayed. Hmm. Betrayal's never good. Betrayal always hurts. Jesus is human. We understand in his passion that he suffered as a man all the things that we suffer. He knows what betrayal is. So if you're thinking that I've got this betrayal event in my life and no one understands it, Jesus does. Jesus understands betrayal. They will condemn him to death. Hmm. They will say, you deserve to die. And that's what the Sanhedrin decided. He deserves death because he's a blasphemer. <laughs> However, they don't do the actual execution. They hand him over to the Romans. He gets handed over to the Gentiles. Now, the Jew of that day would understand there is nothing worse than being judged by the Sanhedrin of worthy of death and then delivered over to the Romans. The Messiah is supposed to deliver the Jewish people from Roman rule. And now they're taking the King Messiah and they're giving him over to the Romans so that they can do the dirty work. The Romans just absolutely humiliate him. They do not understand the Jewish Messiah. They have no clue who he is. And so the soldiers mock him, spit on him, flog him. And as you read later in the Gospels, you see how they did that. They punch him. They smack him on the head with the crown of thorns with a reed. They said, prophesy, who, who punched you? you know, they go through all of this humiliating torment and Jesus is quiet. They spit on him and they flog him. And so we see the suffering and the humiliation with how the Lord Jesus was treated and then they crucify him and they kill him. But Jesus always adds in all three announcements of what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem and on the third day he will rise. All three accounts. This is the most specific in Mark's gospel of the detail of how they're gonna treat Jesus. And so he's given them the specifics so that when it happens, hopefully it will jog their memory and they'll understand. But with no response recorded in the scripture, Luke says 
The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them and they did not know what he was talking about. Wow. The times in my life when I've been around people and I've had them speak, particularly in counseling, where a wife is speaking and the husband is there, and when she's done, the husband did not hear a word that she said. It's always because he's preoccupied with his rebuttal. His, he's preoccupied with his own frame of reference on how they see reality, and so they don't hear. I don't know if the disciples are just so ingrained that the Messiah is gonna deliver them from the Romans that they can't hear anything about the suffering that Jesus is about to endure. But what we find is Jesus is showing to them something that will follow them in the future. Something that as they come to understand who he truly is, and as they come into relationship with him beyond just a disciple-rabbi relationship, but into the Lord relationship, into the friend relationship, into the husband-wife relationship, that we see Jesus bringing revelation of, then we understand what compels him. What always compels Jesus is love. He is compelled by love. He must go to Jerusalem because he has a destiny and the destiny of the love of the Father being released to all of us comes at a price, an understanding of the sacrifice, the suffering that the Son of Man is to endure. The shedding of his blood reconciles us to the Father. The shedding of his blood cleanses us from sin. The shedding of his blood forgives us of all our sins, past, present, and future. The blood of Jesus is such a supreme blood, it transcends animal sacrifice. There is nothing else to be sacrificed. He died one for all of us. Therefore, all of us are dead in Christ. And all of us are made alive in Christ. In his sacrificial death, suffering, the shedding of his blood, healing is released. Physical healing, spiritual healing, solical healing. Heal our souls, Lord. Darkness is absolutely defeated. As you know, I always love the, the contemporary musician Carmen when he did uh, the final battle and it's the boxing ring and they're counting and Jesus sacrificially gives of himself and the evil one thinks he's won the contest but the referee, the announcer, is counting backwards. Instead of one, two, three, he's going 10, 9, 8, 7. 
it's coming to the point of resurrection, that the power of darkness is completely annihilated through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Wow. Why tell them what's going to happen to him? They don't understand. But later the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance and they will understand even in their failure, they will understand more clearly. He gave himself. His life was not taken from him. They will understand that Jesus knew precisely everything that was going to happen. And love continued to walk in the will of the Father. And they get a revelation of how powerful love is. How powerful God. So as I look at application today, I'm just thinking, Lord, are you wanting to pull us to the side? There's a sense of we're following, we're walking, we're pursuing, we're on this journey with you. Is there something that you want to take us off to the side and just talk to us? Something individually about? Or us as a local fellowship? Something that he's taking us aside because he wants to, he wants to talk to us. He wants to reveal something that's coming because if you don't have the heads up, if you don't have the awareness that there's something that could be very difficult, very unpleasant that's about to come, it, it might just get you confused and rattled. And we know that the enemy never takes a day off. So in the midst of the discombobulation, he tries to insert fear, anxiety, worry, unbelief. I wonder if he's calling us aside more often than we realize. One way in which the Lord can pull us to the side is give us a dream. I like that because, you know, you just put your head on the pillow and all of a sudden then he's in charge and he takes over and he gives you a heads up of, of what's to come. And so with that heads up, you know how to pray. You can pray that it doesn't come to pass. You can pray for grace and courage and boldness to go through it. But with it comes an, an understanding of what is on the horizon. What either is going to happen or what the enemy is trying to orchestrate to come against you. Now, when we get what the enemy is trying to do, we call that the second heaven revelation. That's where the enemy's plans and operations, his headquarters are, and it's in that, in, in that domain that we get sometimes glimpses. And when we get a glimpse of what, what the enemy's up to, we know how to position ourselves and align ourselves in the Lord so that we can thwart it, so that we can come against it, so it does not come to pass. I like it when those come for, for, to me in, in dreams. They're usually not my favorite kind of dreams. I prefer glory dreams, but warning dreams are still good. But other times it's when we 
hear that little impression of the Lord that says, I want you to come apart with me because there's some things that you are about to go through that you need to understand where I am in the midst of it. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise you can absolutely count on. But as you go through this, you need to know that I'm with you. I'll give you the grace to bear it up or I'll release supernatural power to transform it. Miracles, please. Yes. I really believe that these are the days in which miracles are going to be so frequent that it's going to be one of those things that we'll have to be careful not to become just kind of taking them for granted. But I think in the days to come, the supernatural demonstrations of God's love and power. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. To receive more audio content from The Vineyard, click the subscribe button in iTunes.